The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. On the 22nd of June 1941, Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union. Operation Barbarossa was the largest invasion in history up to that point and represented a colossal gamble for Hitler's regime. The ensuing six months saw a titanic, murderous battle between the two totalitarian regimes that would ultimately decide the outcome of the entire war. Eighty years on, the events of Barbarossa have been chronicled in a new book by the historian, author and broadcaster Jonathan Dumbleby. And in today's episode, he recounts these dramatic events in conversation with BBC History magazine editor Rob Attar. The subtitle of your book is How Hitler Lost the War. So is it fair to say, in your view, that these six months are the decisive moment of the entire conflict? I think there's no question that when you look at what happened in Operation Barbarossa and see how the situation was by the end of the year, it is inconceivable that Hitler could have prevailed against the Soviet Union. The uh, resources that had been expended by the Wehrmacht were huge. Uh, The energy, uh, the manpower, the weaponry on the one hand. The Wehrmacht um, was very effective, very efficient, but it did not have sustainable resources to last a long struggle without getting weaker all the time. Conversely, uh, the Red Army was very weak at the start, not in terms of numbers, but in terms of uh, efficiency, readiness and capability. By the end of the year, although it had suffered hugely and disproportionately uh, far more people, weapons lost, hideous, hideous amount of death in the first six months. By the, by the end of the year, the Soviet Union relatively was stronger, and that gap between the two was going to grow. Hitler, in my view, and I am not alone in this, actually lost the war in 1941. After that, it was a terrible, hideous, murderous, attritional conflict. Now, coming back to the, the origins of Barbarossa, How far back do you think we need to go to begin this story? I mean, can we see the plans of Barbarossa right back in the 1920s when Hitler's writing Mein Kampf, say? I think that I started by thinking, well, I might be able to just go back a little way, go back to the pact between 
the Soviet Union and Germany between Stalin and Hitler, which was called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which was in just before the outbreak of the Second World War. And I found myself going back further and further out of curiosity to understand better. So I think you do have to go back to the First World War. Um, in terms of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the German situation, the rise of Hitler, Mein Kampf made it very clear. Uh, I want Lebensraum. I want to destroy Judeo-Bolshevism. I want to eliminate Jewry, the Jews from Europe, by whatever means is most practicable. Um, in the case of the Soviet Union, you had a revolutionary state. It's the biggest country in, in, in Europe. These are the two great powers of Europe. They either had to get on with one another or, given the circumstances of that part of the 20th century, they were going to come to conflict because of the ideological convictions of Hitler maniacal, demonic, insane, on the one hand. And on the other, the Soviet Union's need to preserve its identity itself, secure itself from the threats, the multiple threats that it saw around it. So do you therefore see the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of 1939 as really only a temporary reprieve? Was there any chance that could have lasted longer? I don't think there was any chance that the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact could have lasted, though both sides uh, pretended in public that they would have everlasting amity. The truth is, Hitler had already decided, had already decided he was going to invade. Um, the, uh, uh, the Russians, Stalin specifically, could not bear the prospect and wanted to postpone that, suspecting that it would be inevitable. And uh, as a result, uh, went through with the pact deeply cynical on both sides. Um, each gave to the other in formal terms. They divided up Eastern Europe between them along a 3,000-kilometre front, carving up Eastern Europe, and that became the new front. And then they both, at that point, moved into their respective extended territories. In fact, the Germans already occupied most of, the, of theirs along this line that carved its way through Eastern Europe, facing one another, it was only a matter of time, and it just needed a trigger for the conflict to break out because of Hitler's demonic insistence that the Bolsheviks and the Jews had to be eliminated from the face of Europe. And was there anything that Britain could have done to perhaps forestall Barbarossa? Could Britain have made a more formal agreement with the Soviet Union that might have dissuaded Hitler from fighting war on two fronts? It is the great uh, historical complex conundrum. Britain went through the motions of trying to forge an alliance or a partnership of some kind with the Soviet Union in the run-up to the Second World War. Indeed, in the summer of 1939, the British ne negotiators were in Moscow at the same time as the Germans and Russians were negotiating. So there was this very bizarre set of uh, dual negotiations going on conducted on both sides, on all sides, in bad faith. The British uh, loathed the Bolsheviks for very good reason. Historically, the Bolsheviks combined murderous characteristics, Stalin specifically, um, on the one hand. In addition, communism, Bolshevism posed a threat to Western capitalism. 
there was a real deep loathing. Chamberlain and most of those around him, with the exception of Churchill, who loathed Bolshevism as well, thought if we can get, I'm putting it crudely, but it's roughly true, if we can get the Russians, the Soviets, into conflict with the Germans, we will be spared having to uh, fight quite so hard to protect our interests, our imperial interests in, in, in the world. So there was these negotiations that went on. Yes, had there been a greater readiness to yield to some of the Soviet demands uh, that ultimately Stalin uh, achieved, then there might have been a deal. The Soviet Union would, I think, have been ready, but the distrust on both sides was huge. You have to remember that that, that Britain was fighting after the revolution in the civil war on the side of the whites, the, the, the quotes, reactionaries, close quotes, against the revolutionaries. Deep, deep distrust, and that was pursued, although diplomatic relations were uh, reopened on and off, and there were trading relations, there was a hatred uh, and a contempt on the British side for the Bolshevik leadership. And in terms of the actual timing of Barbarossa, that takes place in late June 1941. Is there any particular reason why that was chosen for the date? And was this a mistake to not launch the invasion earlier in the year? The original timetable, which had been set the summer before um, in broad terms and then confirmed in late 1940, was December 1940, was for May uh, 1941. But uh, Hitler had to take forces to the Balkans to uh, resist. Uh, 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 well, it, it goes back a little bit further than that, and it's, it's quite important. The one the source of the breakdown of the uh, of the agreement, the trigger, if you like, for the breakdown of the agreement was the Balkans. The one thing that the Soviet Union would not give up was access to the Black Sea, uh, the Crimea, Sebastopol. The Danube was at the heart of the issue. For the Nazis, that territory was crucial to possess, and Hitler was not going to yield that. And there was this extraordinarily ill-humoured meeting in December of 1940 between Molotov and Hitler, at which the impasse became very clear. Then the British become involved because the British see that there is the threat and they want to protect their Mediterranean interests, the interests in the Middle East. So in, in the early spring of 1941, Hitler sends troops which were lining up to invade the Soviet Union, had to dispatch them to the Balkans, had to, I say had to, this is all, <laughs> had to is a relative word, decided to go in and destroy Yugoslavia, bomb bomb Belgrade to smithereens and occupy uh, Greece, driving the British out of Greece because he feared, Hitler feared that the British would use that as a launch pad for an attack on the, on the underbelly, if you like, of, of the Third Reich. Um, and... Meanwhile, the British were very concerned. They knew it was a pretty disastrous military enterprise to protect the Greeks, which they couldn't do. So we left humiliatingly uh, from, uh, from, from Greece, at which point it was possible to move the divisions back to the Polish uh, front and prepare for Barbarossa. But it had been delayed by a month. Now, there's much debate about how crucial that was. The timetable that was set for taking Moscow should have made it uh, possible to do before the winter, 
which is what they wanted to achieve because they knew the weather conditions would not be good in the winter for war fighting. Um, however, that timetable was wildly over-optimistic because the strength of the Red Army was wildly underestimated. Now, famously, in the initial weeks of uh, Barbarossa, Stalin seemingly was caught out and the, the Wehrmacht made really rapid advances. Considering Stalin is notorious for being such a paranoid character, how was it that he failed to heed the huge number of warnings that were coming in about an attack from the Nazis? It's a very good question. It was uh, inconceivable that had he had an open mind about the evidence, about the intelligence, that he wouldn't have been aware that there was a real threat. It was coming to him, the warnings were coming to him from Japan, really uh, uh, Richard Zorg, uh, was the main uh, spy there, um, from Germany, from France and from elsewhere, from the occupied German territories, that something was afoot. And these voices got noisier and noisier and louder and louder. He could not bear to contemplate the thought that he would be driven into a war with the Nazi war machine when the Red Army was not yet ready. So he chose to blind himself to the roaring noise of evidence. And that had early on in Barbarossa, catastrophic consequences. And so, so really, do you think it is this lack of preparedness that explains the disastrous performance of the Red Army in the first few weeks? I think lack of preparedness is one of the factors. Um, the leadership was very demoralised. There had been the purges of two years earlier in, in which um, tens of thousands of senior officers were removed Thousands were executed, including decapitating the very most, uh, the most senior figures following um, um, the, 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 the view that there was a counter-revolutionary force in the military that was going to seize his, uh, uh, his head. Uh, Stalin was, uh, as you say, Sta Stalin was deeply paranoid. Uh, so the, the, there, was a, there was a lack of strong leadership there was a lack of uh, military strategic uh, uh, organization. Uh, uh, the defences were in a weak position along the along the border. Um, the troops were ill trained. A lot of officers did not want to make decisions on their own part. Um, they were an army that was not ready to fight. A lot of the weapons, although huge in number, were um, in need of repairs. They were broken. They were out of date. There were a lot of one, weapons coming along, but they weren't yet uh, ready. So you had ill-trained, ill-prepared, demoralised troops in the wrong positions, fighting a highly organised, highly focused three-pronged attack by 3.3 million Axis men on the battlefield. And that's why the blitzkrieg that began on the 22nd of June went at such a stunning pace to start with. So despite those initial early advances, at what point do you see things beginning to go slightly awry for the Wehrmacht? You realise that something is wrong quite early. Even in early July, uh, Franz Holder, who was the chief of staff of the, of the um, army, was worrying about the strength of the Soviet resistance, not their skills, not the quality of their weaponry, but their readiness to stand and fight and not run as they had presumed would happen. And certainly by 
August, there was real anxiety. And that coincided, incidentally, with a hiatus in Hitler's planning, because Hitler was close leading. He was operationally involved. He wasn't a stand-back figure who had laid out an objective. He was there saying, you do this, you do that. Fearful arguments broke out in the high command uh, between field commanders and the commanders um, at headquarters and within those groups. And so there was a there was the beginning of a of a not disintegration, that's too strong. There was the beginning of a deep sense that this could very easily go wrong. And and how important do you think it was that there was this disagreement about strategy and there wasn't, say, a clear drive towards Moscow? Had the Nazis adopted a policy of, of you know, Moscow or bust, would that have been more successful, do you think? I think this is a very difficult question to answer. There are competing uh, military views. There was It was a three-pronged attack, Army Group North, Army Group Centre, Army Group South. Army Group North was destined for Leningrad. Army Group South was destined for Kiev uh, in, in, in Ukraine and then onwards down into the Crimea and eastwards towards Stalingrad. Army Group Centre, which was the biggest force, was charged to go and take Moscow in the belief that if you could surround or destroy Moscow, Bolshevism would collapse and the whole of the Soviet Union would implode. However, um, Hitler was also desperate for resources, Um, the industrial resources around Leningrad, but also the symbolic destruction of uh, the city. In the south, in the area of the Donets, um, huge industrial activity and vast agricultural reserves and oil. And those, that, those demands meant that he was torn. And in August, he could not make up his mind. He talked at one point about um, two souls wrestling in his breast. I mean, I don't think he had any soul, but that's what he, the phrase he used. Um, uh, uh, should he go to the south and focus on the south once Leningrad, was, which was quite quickly secured, as it were, besieged, or should they focus on Moscow? The army group centre led by led by Bock, was determined, along with the whole of the army leadership, that Moscow should be the objective. I think what cannot really ever be known was had they focused on Moscow and had they got to Moscow earlier, would they have been able to take Moscow? Possibly. But what would have happened then would have been that the... uh, the leadership would have just retreated towards the Urals eastwards. There was a lot of territory east of Moscow, vast, much greater than west of Moscow. And then um, would it, they have been able to prevent Hitler confidently securing the economic resources that would starve the Red Army and the Soviet people of what they needed to survive? I, I don't make a final judgment about that because... What, ha- what happened was what was important was that there was a hiatus and as a result, um, uh, days and weeks were lost, which again delayed the advance on, on Moscow while the Red Army was beginning to get its act together. Now, ultimately, as we know, the Wehrmacht was stopped outside Moscow. The Soviet Union managed to defend its capital. What do you see as the key reasons for the Nazis' failure to take Moscow? Because 
it's interesting in your book that you argue perhaps the weather's not as important as we sometimes think it was, that other factors might be more crucial. A lot of the Wehrmacht commanders um, after the war who survived um, wanted to blame the weather, General Mud, as they called the weather. The weather was atrocious. It was unspeakable conditions, you know, deep, glutinous mud that meant vehicles couldn't move, horses, large numbers of horses, 700,000 horses invaded uh, the Soviet Union carrying, bearing artillery and, 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 and carts. And men got wet and cold. Then the cold came, the, the serious cold, minus 10, minus 20, minus 30 plus degrees centigrade. And the German soldiers were totally ill-equipped because it was assumed that the Soviet Union would collapse in weeks. And it, this was assumed around the world, incidentally. Everyone thought the Soviet Union would collapse. And the, uh, the uh, Allies said, let's keep them going as long as we can, support them as much as possible, because the longer they fight against the Germans, the, the weaker the German army will be in facing and threatening the United Kingdom. So the weather was bad, but it was predictably bad. The weather's always bad at that time of year. Um, General Mudd is always on the march. And, um, and the Red Army had to face the same conditions, but was equipped better to do it. Their weapons didn't freeze up to the same degree that the, uh, the um, army's weapons. You know, artillery wouldn't fire. Tanks wouldn't start. They lit fires under the tanks to get them going. Meanwhile, they were running out of supplies and fuel. People were getting starved of food. They were getting starved of equipment. And the, 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 the attack was faltering. They were also losing large numbers of lives. Um, you know, in that first six months of the war, the Germans lost almost as many lives through uh, death, imprisonment, wounding, um, as the Allies did in the whole of the war, the Western Allies did in the whole of the war. You know, these were huge losses. They were... They were dwarfed by the scale of losses that the Soviets uh, lost. Nonetheless, um, th this was attrition that they couldn't withstand. And by that time also, um, General Zhukov, who was the, uh, the general on whom Stalin called whenever there was a crisis to take over, had commandeered forces on a scale to protect Moscow that made it extraordinary ordinarily difficult. I don't think myself there was any chance that they could have taken Moscow uh, at that time. No chance whatsoever. They were, they were broken, they were defeated um, as a fighting aggressive force. And, and you heard, I mean, the, the, the commanders, the men all talking about it. You know, we can't do this. It was an absolute breakdown of the capacity of a fighting force to fight a winning war. And, and that's why, I mean, there are those who think that actually the war was, was lost. You can go right back to August and say that Hitler lost the war in August. But by December, it was never going to be possible to build up the forces again so far from the Third Reich itself to anything like the level required to do more than slaughter its own men in large quantities on the battlefield in the pursuit of what had become uh, a, a nightmare that could never be realised, namely the conquest of the Soviet Union. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But it is interesting, you know, that, that um, 
some of the great historians of Stalingrad, Anthony Beaver, for example, um, says that the turning point of the war militarily was in December of 1941. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. In your last answer, you mentioned the role of Zhukov. And I, yeah, I'd be interested to know how you think the the Soviet generals, in particular Zhukov, fared in, in this campaign. How crucial was his contribution to the defence of Moscow? It was, it was extremely important. He was ruthless, very clear-minded. Um, occasionally, not very often, he confronted Stalin. To confront Stalin was to risk your life or at the very least, put yourself in the hands of the NKVD and, and to find yourself chucked into the Lubyanka for, for the rest of your life and, or to lose your position and your family to be denied your pension and your children their education. I mean, it was a hideously rough uh, uh, environment socially. And the, he had, as part of his armoury, fear the fear of his own men, that if they did not advance an attack, they would face the firing squad, not only um, um, uh, uh, for, for doing what all soldiers do when it becomes irresistible, retreating, um, uh, but because they set up blocking groups, which were units within the divisions who stood behind the line so that if there was any retreat, they would mow down their own soldiers. They had more and more soldiers. Whenever they lost men, more came. And they came, particularly uh, uh, just before the the, uh, the the battle for Moscow, they came from the Far East, from Siberia, where they had been facing the Japanese, but by that time they knew the Japanese were not going to attack. The Japanese had other, as it were, fish to fry because following Pearl Harbor, they had to decide, do we go to the Soviet Union or do we go down and get the oil that we need if we're going to survive um, from the Dutch East Indies and elsewhere. And they knew that the Japanese was not going to, were not going to attack, so they could bring huge numbers of men. Zhukov had the capacity to, to summarise it. He had the leadership skills to organise, to be decisive in a very ruthless fashion. He got things wrong. Um, he had uh, increasing quality of... Of, of weaponry at his resource, notably very good tanks and much better artillery. The men were better trained and he had many, many more of them. And by a combination of genuine deep patriotism, these Nazis are taking our motherland. They've taken our homes. They've taken our farms. They've killed our families. They've destroyed our towns and villages. Very deep and genuine and powerful combined with the knowledge that if you did not fight, you would either become a prisoner of war, uh, on the one hand, of the Germans, which was a fate as bad and often worse than dying on the battlefield, or you would face the rage and the horror and the death 
and the insult of being uh, eliminated by your own commanders for the treachery of cowardice. What's your view on Stalin himself during these months? How integral was he to the ultimate defeat of Barbarossa? He is such a, a, a complex figure. We know that when he took power, that he, he was a mass murderer in the 30s. You know, he's a mass murderer, responsible for mass murder, signing off mass murder um, of anyone who he thought would threaten him, and also for economic reasons, you know, get rid of the kulaks from Ukraine and deport them or kill them. Um, if they have to suffer famine, well, that's okay. We need the resources for the city. And they suffered famine and very many millions uh, died. He was a man who was deeply paranoid. Um, he also had considerable power of personality, a quiet, charismatic power. People were very loyal to him, very devoted to him, and not only from fear, although fear played a significant uh, part. And he was surrounded by a, by a, a you know, set of grotesques in lots of ways, uh, as awful in their own way as, as, the, uh, as the acolytes that surrounded Hitler. No, these were murderous people. They went along with these uh, policies of, of brutal suppression of rights in order to impose um, Bolshevism um, and, in fact, state power um, and the dictatorship of the proletariat, which is really their dictatorship, um, upon the, 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 the Soviet people. Yet, he found it almost impossible to believe once the invasion took place that it had happened. He became briefly catatonic. He retreated to his um, dacha, and it was almost as if he feared that he might be removed from power by his henchmen. They were absolutely loyal to him, and then he bounced back. Um, he, it wasn't he who went on the radio to start with to announce that the invasion had happened. He left that to Molotov, um, who was known as Old Stoneass because he was a very tough negotiator and also said that... Um, uh, Stalin kicked his ass a great deal, so it became stone-like. Um, and, and Molotov took the shock of his listeners on these loudspeakers, said, the, the invasion has happened. When he did go public, Stalin wonderfully, brilliantly rallied the nation. Uh, whatever people's views were of him, whether they were deeply opposed in private or whether they were devotees who saw him just as an awesome figure in the distance. Um, he, he had a great effect by appealing not to communism, not to socialism, not to the party, not to any ideological vision, but to the nation that had produced Tolstoy and Tchaikovsky, the nation that had great writers and poets and it was the Russian nation, our land. And he called people f friends. They, they, I, it's hard to exaggerate how powerful this was psychologically for the Soviet people, although many of them still thought we're going to go to our doom. So he then took command um, and he made dreadful errors. But the one thing he did do was to pick I mean, he kept getting rid of people, but he picked Zhukov and one or two others um, and gave them the authority. Uh, he would sometimes dismiss them. He would sometimes contradict them. He would sometimes insist 
on enterprises that were self-defeating, that they knew were self-defeating. He made terrible errors, but he took command. So he was a powerful, powerful figure of what was a fight back. Um, Something that comes through really strongly in your book is the savagery of the fighting on the Eastern Front, which I mean, is definitely more extreme than in several other theatres of the Second World War. What, What do you think explains that? Is that purely down to the mutual loathing of these two regimes? It was incomparably more terrible than anything that happened anywhere on the Western Front at any point in the war. This was a war of of barbaric proportions. There were murders on and off the battlefield, dismemberments. Um, I, when I was reading the detail of people's experiences on both sides, people's accounts of what happened in which they participated, I recoiled in horror at it. And I've, you know, I've, I've read quite a lot one way or another. It is so unspeakably terrible. Uh, Mass punishments, individual torture. um, And it sprang, I think, on the German side because they'd been taught in significant measure to regard the Slavic people as well as the Jews as being subhuman. This had been drilled into them for a long time. And they came to believe that they weren't, you just had to read their diaries and letters, which I use in the book extensively, to see that they regarded them as subhuman, not belonging properly to the human species. And because they were more like animals, in inverted commas, because that's how they were described by their own commanders, they were perfectly happy to violate anything that would constitute uh, rules of warfare. There were Geneva Conventions totally violated. That was on the, on, the, on, the, on the German side. There were some who recoiled from it, some soldiers who recoiled from the horror of it. But if you think that the, 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 the commanders presided over this, people who had belonged to the proud Prussian tradition of the German military, they had been infected by this virus of contempt as well. On the Soviet side, there was a hatred for the invader, which grew and grew. And that was uh, stoked up by the media that there was, by articles, by broadcasts, the the Nazi beast, the fascist beast, the rats. They were encouraged to kill, kill and kill. And they killed and they killed because there was no other option from their point of view if they were going to get rid of this invader. But they also uh, committed appalling atrocities, not, I think, on the same scale as the Nazis by any means, because they were on the retreat for most of Barbarossa. Um, But they did some pretty hideous things when they uh, were able to get hold of a group of German soldiers. It was as hideous, as unspeakable, as barbaric, as brutal as any conflagration between two peoples en masse in war could ever be imagined on a scale that has never been, uh, uh, will never be, one prays, repeated in history. And as you alluded to in that last answer, Barbarossa sees mass killings of Jews as the Wehrmacht advances. How integral do you think these six months are to the development of the Holocaust? It, it is sometimes thought, and understand it from people who haven't followed it closely, that the central element of the Holocaust were the death camps, Chelno, Auschwitz, Birkenau, etc. Um, and they were very obviously critically important. But the Holocaust began 
1941, before the death camps were running properly, before the gas chambers had been built, a, a million or more Jews were killed in 1941. Uh, the mechanism by what that, how that happened was uh, it developed bit by bit. The, the, the Himmler, who was in charge of the SS, uh, working with Heydrich, um, created or established the Einsatzgruppen, as they were called, uh, euphemistically task forces. Their role, there were four of them, were to go behind the lines as the, as the German armies advanced and to isolate people who were uh, Soviet uh, commissars, subversives. That very rapidly became indistinguishable from killing Jews. And by August, they were openly talking, boasting about the numbers of Jews that they'd killed. And killing was done um, in an increasingly organised way which was to round up Jews. I mean, the most famous example, and there are scores upon scores of these examples, but the most famous, uh, notorious example um, of the period was at Babi Yar outside Kiev, um, when the, the, the Einsatzgruppen rounded up very large numbers of Jews, herded them to this ravine, the edge of this ravine, required them, this is all documented by the killers themselves in detail, as well as by those few victims who uh, survived, required them to take off their clothes, to put their belongings in one place, marched them up to the edge of the ravine, and then shot them. They fell into the ravine, the next lot came. And they, they were helped. And this happened across the front, from the Baltic down to the edge of the Balkans, down to Ukraine. Um, they were helped by uh, uh, local people very often. They're either volunteers or by uh, um, police squads who joined in the operation. And they were terrible, terrible. I mean, they're, un they're hardly bearable to talk about. The unspeakable quality, the hideous inhumanity uh, of the Einsatzgruppen, which was led by, and its principal uh, protagonists, were educated people. These were not uh, drunks hauled off the street or drug addicts who had no mental capacity that um, would allow you to judge them. These were educated people. They were people who had been doctors, who'd been all through university, who were civil servants, who volunteered for this task. You know, this, the, the depravity was beyond imagination. And, and um, some of them became very ill as a result of it, as it happens. You know, they, they had to cope with the consequences of their own criminality. They had, you know, they, they drowned, them, drowned themselves in alcohol. They, they, they turned to drugs. And that became a real problem for the command. And very importantly, the, the Wehrmacht High Command, historically, tried to dissociate itself from any of this. They pretended after the war that they did not know about it. Not only did they know about it, it would have been impossible for them not to know about it. It was on such a scale. And they were complicit, if not actually participating themselves, in the killing grounds that the 
Einsatzgruppen occupied. And so you have, uh, as I say, a million or more Jews killed in 1941 by the Einsatzgruppen. For those who uh, weren't killed but were captured on the battlefield, what kind of conditions did they face at the hands of the opposing regimes? Well, the, 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 the Soviet troops very quickly knew what it would mean to be taken prisoner because sometimes prisoners escaped. They would be taken back in huge columns, hundreds of thousands of men captured after encirclements at, at key salients, right back into Poland and sometimes beyond. But they had almost no food or water and they died in large numbers on the way. They were whipped and bullied along, uh, pistol whipped. They got onto trains and wagons and they died on those wagons. And when they got to the prisoner of war camps, so-called, um, there was nothing. Barbed wire, no food, total starvation, unless they were strong enough to do a bit of slave labour. And then they died after that. The figures are quite startling. I think that around three million soldiers of those taken prisoner by the Germans died in captivity, three million men. Of those, two million were taken prisoner and died um, from starvation or at the point of a gun in 1941. I mean, these are astronomical figures. Although later, when the Soviets took prisoners, many died as well, it wasn't in the same number. And it wasn't from the... the uh, the belief that their lives didn't matter because they were subhuman Slavs, um, uh, animals. It, it was because of the chaos and incompetence and also the brutality of a regime that didn't really care for, for any human life apart from its own. Now, taking the story sort of further away from the, the battle lines itself, how important was the outcome of Barbarossa to Britain? And to what extent do you think British aid helped sway the outcome? There was British aid and US aid um, on Lend-Lease principles, i.e. Um, you can borrow now and pay back later. Um, uh, the, in 1941, it was of no consequence. It had started up, but there was no significant weaponry coming in in support. Uh, later in the war, it became more useful. And certainly by 1943-1944, it was valuable, but not, uh, although the extent to which that was valuable is contested. The, the, in 1941, it was irrelevant. The role of the British uh, was to try to keep on side with Stalin, to prevent any possibility of Stalin being defeated, which is what they had thought would happen, or getting so close to defeat that he would try to create another version of the, of, of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, i.e. form an alliance of some kind with the Nazis and say, OK, we can settle this somehow or other. You've won, but you give us enough territory, i.e. a negotiation. It was never on the cards, incidentally, in my view. It once came up, it was once half-murmured by Stalin, but uh, I, I don't think it was a serious uh, project at any point. Um, the, 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 don't forget, at that point, the United States was to be by far the most important contributor to the to the Western effort of the war after Pearl Harbor was not in 1941 engaged. So it was simply ratcheting up against Hitler and and demanding resources go to to the Soviet Union. Churchill was rather reluctant for resources to go because 
the British were under great pressure too, not only to protect the United Kingdom, which they still feared would face invasion if the Nazis beat the, 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 the Soviet Union, but also uh, the imperial interests, which were of huge importance to, uh, to Churchill and indeed generally whether people were anyone in the cabinet. No one sort of thought the empire was, a, or very few, thought the empire was anything other than a given that was very important to protect in North Africa, the Middle East, India and beyond. So that was where British forces were stretched almost to breaking point to protect. Uh, so he was quite reluctant to, uh, Church was quite reluctant, uh, regarded as sort of, you know, anything we give to the Soviet Union is material that we haven't got and we need. So it was a political relationship. The Once Barbarossa had happened, it coincided with the United States coming into the war, and then things began to change because even before the end of 1941, Anthony Eden, the foreign secretary, went to Moscow and had a meeting with Stalin at which um, he came back from saying, now is how we have to negotiate Eastern Europe's borders. We should do it now while we are in a position of strength, not leave it until the Eastern Europe and much of Europe is controlled by Stalin. I think it was a demonstration of immense foresight because by the time Stalin was in control of Eastern Europe, the Western Allies didn't have a leg to stand on in negotiations over what kind of freedoms the people of Eastern Europe uh, should have. But Churchill was very reluctant to do more. He had a very abrasive relationship with Stalin. There was much more hate than love in the relationship, although he had been the f one of the very first always to recognise that the Soviet Union and Britain should be in an alliance. He didn't care for, uh, quite understandably, for the way in which Stalin's manner in, because it's all correspondences, it's all you know, telegrams and messages, it's, it's not speaking on telephones, um, uh, was sort of coarse, brutal, bullying, threatening, ungrateful. And he did not like that uh, a bit and resented terribly a tone which, which, um, which led him always to say, this is Churchill, led him always to say, at the point at which we were fighting for our lives, we didn't know whether you were going to be joining Hitler or not because that was in 1939. It wasn't until, until 1941 that the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact broke down. And so looking at Barbarossa as a whole, was it always a fatal gamble? Or do you think there was any way that Nazi Germany could have defeated the Soviet Union? I think there are the, some of the most percipient of, of analysts think it was doomed from the beginning. And with the benefit of hindsight, you can say that it was. No one at the time believed that it was doomed. The German generals were uneasy about it because they were uneasy about the possibility of fighting on two fronts, on the Western Front and on the Eastern Front, because of their resources. So if they looked carefully at their economic resources, the economic potential, the fact that the economy was declining and not expanding, that even though when uh, Speer came in to take charge of the armaments ministry in early 1942, uh, he expanded output. It was expanding more slowly than the Soviet output. Now, we didn't know that that was going to be the case then. So you can't be unequivocal and say, yes, it was doomed. I do think, I, I say that there was no doubt that by the end of the year, 
it was doomed. And therefore, Hitler was doomed by then. And Hitler was beaten and broken by the uh, Soviet Union. And that the Western allies played a secondary supportive role in that. And I think that historical proposition is very difficult to overturn. Uh, you could say that actually it was at Stalingrad, but it is interesting, you know, that that um, some of the great historians of Stalingrad, Anthony Beaver, for example, um, says that the turning point of the war militarily was in December of 1941. The psychological turning point was uh, in 1943 with the fall of uh, the Wehrmacht's uh, attempt to, to, to take Stalingrad. That was Jonathan Dimbleby. Barbarossa, How Hitler Lost the War, was published a few days ago by Viking. And you can read a version of this interview in the May issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes pieces on the Peasants' Revolt, Napoleon and the History of Slimming Clubs. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Join us tomorrow for the first episode in our new series on Britain's greatest prime ministers. (laughs) 